This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by TextHelp, a global technology company helping people all over the world to understand and to be understood. It has led the way in creating innovative technology for the workplace and education sectors, including K-12, right through to higher education for the last three decades. And TextHelp's programs won the Tech and Learning Best of Show at the ISTE Live 2022. Check out their programs for reading, writing, math, and classroom collaboration, and learn about the ways their digital tools support diverse and challenged learners to become thriving, independent learners. Find text help at edcuration.com. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional movements, resources, tools, and practices that are reshaping learning. Essentially, my entire career has been about empowering kids. And the thing I loved most about teaching was differentiated instruction. And I had the gifted and talented group. And I had the special ed kids. So I, I had both ends. And I, I discovered that what I really loved is to see kids' light bulbs go on. Who doesn't as a teacher? It's why we go into the profession. That's today's guest, Andrea Keith. Andrea spent many years as a classroom teacher. Fourth grade was her favorite, she said, because they were old enough to catch her sarcastic humor, but young enough to still love the teacher. Andrea transitioned out of the classroom and into the world of educational technology, working at a company called Gaggle for 11 years, not to be confused with Google, although they did have similar missions. And then she learned about an organization called Let Grow. This idea that childhood has changed and and kids aren't learning naturally the independence and the uh, skills of, you know, resilience and negotiation and collaboration. Um, You know, we learned that naturally growing up, running around the neighborhood until the streetlights came on. And I hadn't really thought about the fact that that wasn't happening anymore. Let Grow is a nonprofit whose mission is to make it easy normal, and legal to give kids the independence they need to grow into confident, capable, and happy adults. They believe that kids are smarter and stronger than our culture gives them credit for, and that treating them as physically and emotionally fragile is bad for them, and for their future, and for ours. I hadn't heard of the work of Let Grow until I read Johan Hari's New York Times bestselling book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention and How to Think Deeply Again. In addition to several best-selling books, Johan Hari has a number of popular TED Talks on anxiety, depression, addiction, and education. His new book was, hands down, the most important book I've read this year. The chapter on social media algorithms alone changed my life. He devotes an entire chapter to the work of Let Grow. So, of course, I had to reach out to them. And that is where Andrea Keith comes in because she is currently Let Grow's executive director. And so we're fighting that. We're trying to bring back some independence for kids so that they grow up feeling like they can handle things. And they do know how to get along with people or disagree with people because they've had those experiences as children. That prepares them to be better students. That prepares them to be independent thinkers. Critical thinking is something that's very hard to teach if they haven't had some of those experiences as children. So that's what Let Grow is really all about. Let Grow's motto is, when adults step back, kids step up. One of Let Grow's co-founders is journalist Lenore Skenazy, who, after letting her nine-year-old son ride the subway home alone, was labeled across multiple major media outlets as America's worst mom. He's like, mom, can you drop me off someplace and let me find my way home by myself? Yeah. Well, when a kid asks that, they're probably ready for that. And so they did. And obviously he was fine. Um, And he came back just glowing because he felt so accomplished. He'd done something. Well, she ended up writing an article about that. And it kind of, it went went viral in an age before, (laughs) before we were, we were putting everything on social media. And she was on like the Today Show. Everybody was, you know, had her. And in most cases, 
she was being vilified by and a lot of people. In those cases, they were there to interrogate her, right? Like, yes. Like, well, and to shame her and ask, you know, whoa, my gosh, but what if something had happened? Um, and so that's what led her to really write the free, the, the first free range kids book. She's uh, second edition came out last year. Lenore's book, Free Range Kids, is a must read. It's full of solid research, compelling anecdotes, and it reads like stand up comedy. She's super funny. And when it was first published, Free Range Kids garnered interest from Daniel Shuckman of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, along with TED speaker Jonathan Haidt, author of The Coddling of the American Mind and co-author of The Fragile Generation. The two reached out to Lenore about co-founding Let Grow in order to promote childhood independence and resilience. Lenore then recruited Dr. Peter Gray, whose research and TED Talk are focused on the importance of play. This is the heavy-hitting research team behind Let Grow. What have you come to understand about how and why our parenting and teaching styles have shifted so drastically, really in one generation? I mean, my Mm -hmm. friends and I talk about how our parents used to throw us in the back of the station wagon on a mattress for cross-country trips. We didn't even have seatbelts on, right? There were no nets on trampolines. We didn't wear bike helmets. We didn't wear ski helmets. I'm not saying that's good, right? Those are all really, I do all of that now. And It's amazing any of us survived and didn't even have How did we survive? And, And the kids in my neighborhood were out in the summertime running free from morning until night. We were playing kick the can in the street Mm -hmm. every night. And you didn't have a cell phone. No cell phones. No, we just knew what, you know, some dad would come out and whistle and we knew it was all time to go in. Right. Kids didn't have any of that. None of that. And I did fall into the trap of thinking like, oh God, my parents, you know, what were my parents thinking? Giving us all that freedom. (laughs) We could have died. What, really, what we really think, it's it's hard to point to a specific cause, although um, Jonathan Haidt would talk about social media and, and, and the internet certainly contributing to it. But even before that, what happened for a lot of us, if you recall, um, we were of the generation that that's how we were playing. And then there was a very high profile abduction case. Andrea is referring to the 1981 abduction of six-year-old Adam John Walsh, taken from a shopping mall in Hollywood, Florida, and later found murdered. Adam's father, John Walsh, became a victim's rights advocate and founder of the show America's Most Wanted. There was the sudden idea that there were kids being kidnapped and there were missing children. And so what happened was we saw a couple things. National Center for Missing and Exploited Children started putting kids' faces on milk cartons. And um, there was all this talk about stranger danger. And it's interesting because Nick Mick will, will actually has actually said that that was a really bad thing, that that, that that had bad effects because it blew up the perception that this was happening all over the place. It also completely ignored the fact that the vast majority of children still today who are kidnapped or abducted or um, trafficked even are taken by family members, family friends, people the parents know. The odds of being randomly snatched off of a sidewalk by a stranger driving by in a car is infinitesimal, especially if you compare it to something like, gee, what are the odds of getting in a car accident when you strap your child into their car seat? Right. And it does happen. It does happen. And and safety is important. Right. Right. Not to invalidate that it does happen. Absolutely not to invalidate it. But what happened was, is when you see it all the time, the perception becomes that this is something I need to worry about. Right. And so we started teaching kids, don't talk to strangers. Well, don't talk to strangers. Makes it impossible to ask for help when you're lost. Makes it impossible to interact uh, 
in, in any way um, with the world around you. And in a lot of cases, what happened was what was internalized by the kids. And this wasn't this wasn't intended, but what they internalized was, oh, my gosh, it's a scary world out there. I can't talk to anybody. And so we, we, rather than teaching kids to recognize that not all strangers are child predators, that the majority of strangers are good people. And then we added the Internet. We added the internet and media turned into the, hey, fear sells. So we don't see on the news that there were 600 kids in the city of Las Vegas who successfully walked home from school yesterday. That doesn't get reported. The one child that didn't make it home turns into a giant news story where they intentionally don't tell you at the beginning or in the headline that it turns out that there's a custody dispute (laughs) and it was mom who wasn't supposed to have the kid who picked them up from school and took them but we're going to sell the sell the you know the headline yeah so it's it's a perception that does not match with fact yeah that makes sense and it's the pervasiveness right that it's Mm -hmm. Because of social media, we're able to sensationalize these stories and they're in front of us all the time. We can't escape them even if we want to. Mm -hmm. They're just out there. What are we learning now on this side? And I don't know if there's even been a lot of research, but what are the negative impacts of this overcoddling our children and Mm -hmm. students, this overprotection? There are a lot of negative impacts. What we start seeing in schools are kids who are just anxious. Uh, They want to be told what to do. They want to have, you know, directions. They're basically learning to do what they're told. And we end up with a situation where we're seeing kids that unless we tell them to pick up the pencil that dropped on the floor, don't do it on their own. Uh, And we have kids who are so anxious, they're afraid to do anything because they expect it to be perfect. If it's not going to be perfect, I can't do it. And so we've seen huge rises in anxiety. We have seen increases in teen and tween suicide attempts, uh, all of those types of mental health issues we are seeing. And the pandemic, of course, made it worse. And so what we see is schools doing everything they can to try to help children with things like social emotional learning and mindfulness and meditation and how do we deal with the stress. And that's important. But what we're missing is that kids would naturally be resilient if we didn't teach that out of them in a way. You have to have experiences that you bounce back from. Maybe they're painful, maybe they're frustrating, but I was pushing my limits. They're not developing some of those skills. It's a big problem. And then we're seeing adults, kids who aren't ready for college. There's a reason that we had to move insurance from 18 years old that you that you were off your parents' medical insurance to 26. Because there were more and more kids that are not, they're not independent after college or they're not handling college and they're coming home because they can't handle college because they don't have the self-confidence and the basic capabilities to be an adult because we haven't given them those opportunities. If we don't allow the kids to have these scaffolded interactions and experiences children, it, it becomes almost too late when they're adults. Yeah. So we're contributing to the anxiety epidemic that we're seeing. We are. It's so sad because we we have the best of intentions. I don't ever want to shame anybody for for the way we parent today. It's a societal issue. Why does it seem like it's kind of exclusively an American phenomenon? I mean, Lenore even says in her book that uh-huh. in, in her in her contacts and her, in her speaking engagements around the world that 
the rest of the world is really laughing at us. They call us scaredy cat Americans. So why is this overly structured parenting style exclusive to us? Well, well, first I would say that 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 that's not really true anymore. What's fascinating uh, in the two and a half years that I've been with Let Grow uh, is to recognize that we our message has huge appeal in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, and then there's dozens of other countries that have downloaded our our materials from all kinds of places. And what I so what I think the actual thing is that's happening is it has maybe less to do with America and more to do with being a little bit ahead of the curve or some other countries in regards to things like media and the internet and those types of things. Technologically, uh, some places are a little bit further behind. What's interesting, we don't see this this issue certainly in um, some of the Asian countries. So I think what we're seeing is is more of a cultural difference than necessarily just just the U.S. The scary thing is, is that it is starting to spread. So in what ways has this seeped in to our education system? How are we seeing this play out in schools and classrooms with educators? What we're seeing a lot uh, with educators, again, unintentional, but I think there has been an issue of instructional time. We've, we've, seen, we've seen this trend of high stakes testing that has created a lot of pressure on teachers uh, to really make sure that they are, you know, every minute needs to be structured. The other thing that does is it forces adults to do more for kids. I just talked to, to a teacher who teaches in a small rural school and was even complaining about how at lunch, the, the, the teachers go around and they open kids' milk cartons and they pop the straws into their Capri Suns for the kids. Well, again, are these the kids should be first? Oh, this is this is elementary, fifth grade, ten per, kids, perfectly perfectly capable okay. of doing these things for themselves. Why do they do this? Because it's faster, it's more convenient for the adult than watching a kid struggle. And it's faster, get it done, lunch is only so long. Could the kids clean up? Sure they could. It'll take them twice as long. So let's, you know, let so-and-so do it. I think I think we're seeing a lack of independence, not in all classrooms. I, I never want to make that generalization. But there is that pressure that time is so important. And we don't think about the fact that letting them struggle is a learning experience. It's a learning experience. It's funny when I think about how babies learn to walk. When babies learn to walk, parents have to stand back and they watch them take their first few steps. When your kid starts to walk, you don't run up and grab them and pick them up and say, oh, no, 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 no. Let me take you over there because I'm afraid you'll fall down. Yeah, you're not ready for this. Uh, Exactly. And yet we go from that we understand inherently that that's what has to happen, that they're going to fall down. And isn't it nice that they have a diaper on that gives them a little cushion and they get back up. And what do we say? Yay, we clap for them getting back up. And we reward the effort and they ultimately accomplish walking. We forget that somehow as, as, as our children get older, especially when we get into any kind of formal education, because we're so worried about the the end result. And it's hard. Letting go is an act of bravery. Mm-hmm. It really is. It's not easy for parents to do that. And yet every parent that we have worked with that has gone through the Let Grow Project all of a sudden realized that, oh my gosh, my, my child is so much more capable than I've given them credit for. So I'm glad you mentioned the Let Grow Project because school programs is a big part of your focus on what you do. And um, from what I understand, there are essentially three initiatives or programs that Let Grow partners with schools to to make happen. 
And there, there are associated resources that go with those initiatives and they're available through Let Grow. And best part about it is they're free to they're educate. free. They're free to <laughs> So um, I, I'm hoping that you can just tell our listeners what each one of those is. So our primary school programs, actually, there's two primary school programs, the uh, Let Grow Project and the Let Grow Play Club happen outside of the traditional school day. The the homework assignment of doing something on your own is almost, I hate to say this, almost a Trojan horse to get parents to step back a bit. And so it's interesting that when a child comes home and says, my homework assignment is to do something on my own, and kids inherently want to be able to do things on their own, and they say, mom, no, really, you have to, can I just ride my bike to the end of the street? And parents who would normally say no, it's a school assignment, so they're more likely, oh, okay, all right, we'll let you do that. Um, and so what happens is the kids start taking baby steps. The parents start taking those baby steps too. And the recognition that their children are capable. And when they see the child's pride and excitement over having done something on their own, that gets repeated multiple times. The beauty of the Let Grow Project is that it takes pretty much no work on a teacher's part. Although I would say that celebrating what they're doing and, and talking about it in class or or building uh, let grow trees with leaves that say what you accomplished, that's, that's all gonna really help promote the idea that independence is important. But it doesn't take any time from, from the teachers. And it's something that fits every child in every situation, any demographic. One of the things I loved about Let Grow is the understanding that one child's Let Grow moment is another child's, well, duh. So you've got a kid who lives in the rural area, raises chickens, um, but then somebody else is like, well, I've never even picked out my own clothes. So the beauty of it is, is that it fits anybody. You start small. It gradually grows. So by the end of a full year of even doing a Leco project once a month, you see huge growth in the kids. You see kids who embrace it so much that they're doing more Let Grow projects, which you and I would call some of that's used to be normal childhood. Yeah, it's just uh, life. that's just life. <laughs> it, it's just life, but it's not just life for the majority of kids anymore. And so, so what seems to us to be such a simplistic solution is not as easy as it seems uh, to get people to kind of understand that, that what we're doing in a lot of ways is kind of stifling kids. Then we worry about them becoming apathetic and sitting on their screens. Well, when you're told you can't leave the house and you can't you know, do anything for yourself, then the default becomes turning on the television or getting on the screen because that's safe. Yeah, because you're not out in the front yard. Um, so it's interesting that you called it a Trojan horse because my guess is that then it becomes a reverse Trojan horse. So kids uh -huh. start to do these things at home and they become more confident and they that's got to come then back Absolutely. to the classroom. Absolutely, it comes back to the classroom. What we see with kids who are gaining this independence is we see them become more self-sufficient at school. And we're very big right now. We talk a lot about student agency. We talk about self-directed learning. And we understand that kids need to be involved and passionate and moving towards their own educational journey. It all sounds great on paper, but to understand that I have control over myself and that it's not all determined by, by outside adults is crucial. You cannot be a self-directed learner if you don't know how to be a self-directed child. Empowering self-directed learners, despite challenges and obstacles, is a big part of the mission of today's sponsor, TextHelp. Hi, I'm Doug Rosette, president of TextHelp, and we're proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At TextHelp, 
We're focused on helping all people learn, understand, and communicate through the use of digital education and accessibility tools. We're working towards a world where difference, disability, or language are no longer barriers to learning and succeeding. With over 50 million users worldwide, our suite of products include Read and Write, Equatio, and OrbitNote, which work alongside existing platforms such as Microsoft Office and G Suite, enabling them to be integrated quickly into any classroom or workplace with ease. We've changed the lives of millions worldwide and strive to impact the literacy and understanding of 1 billion people by 2030. You'll find text help at edcuration.com. Search T-E-X-T-H-E-L-P, all one word. The Let Grow Project is mm-hmm. in a, a teacher can just, any grade level can do it in their class. Probably Anybody can do it. Like Anybody can do it. We have a wonderful implementation guide. We have teachers who download the guide and do it just in their own classroom. We have materials that are out of the box, copies of send this home. Here's a parent letter. Here's a project ideas list. We have them in Spanish as well. And um, they can run with it. It can become, in a lot of cases, an individual teacher brings it in. Other people start seeing it. They get excited and the whole school does it. You can start at the, at the school or district level and make it an initiative in the entire, you know, entire school, have a year of childhood independence. It becomes a pillar of their culture and their, and their community with their, with their parents. I sort of picture it becoming a, a huge part of their culture, like we're a let grow school. That's what we're aiming for. Absolutely, Christian. It changes how school works too. It becomes part of the identity. So the Let Grow Play Club, I loved reading about in (laughs) your website and in Lenore's book. I'm wondering if you would, first of all, you know, just kind of tell us what the Let Grow Play Club is. So the Let Grow Play Club is really based on Dr. Peter Gray's uh, research and work. Uh, And I told you he's one of our founders. The idea that that we're mammals and we need to play in previous generations. This was what happened when they got home from school. This is what happened all summer. And it was a natural thing. Well, and it used to happen more at recess too. And it happened more at recess. They weren't as many recesses were longer. They were less structured. It just reminds me, one of the other things that have happened that has caused some of the fear and, and the changing in the parenting. I forgot to mention litigation. A fear of being sued uh, has resulted in things like merry-go-rounds are deadly, and we've moved we removed teeter-totters and merry-go-rounds and don't climb. And if you don't have three inches of soft padding underneath your, you know, your rings or whatever, then a parent you might get sued if a child gets hurt. So that's that definitely has added to it. Okay. But what's happened is because we don't have this unstructured free play happening for these kids. We are encouraging schools and other organizations, but schools primarily, to open up their facilities before and after school or on the weekends for unstructured free play. Play club being something that parents sign up for in most cases. We offer the how-tos for free. um, And Occasionally, a school might have a paid teacher, but the idea is that it's a mixed ages, which rarely happens at recess anymore, by the way, right? You don't, you don't have kindergartners on the playground at the same time as fourth graders. Um, so it's mixed ages. It's voluntary. So I'm not recommending that you suddenly send everybody out at recess and just ignore them because that probably won't work. The kids understands that the adults that are there are there as a lifeguard. When you go to the pool, there is the lifeguard. The lifeguard doesn't get in and decide who won at chicken or say, no, you have to share that beach ball or anything like that. They're simply there if something, an emergency actually happens. They're there for safety. Well, what happens with Play Club is you have one or two adults who are there as lifeguards. It's so extraordinarily opposite to what teachers are taught now to handle recess that we actually have determined that we need to have some teacher training as to how to do this kind of a supervision. How to stay out of it. When I was doing recess duty, we were we are taught don't stay in one place, 
because oh, yeah. the kids will know, you know, that the, you need to, the kids need to know that you could show up at any moment. Yeah. It's the zone of proximity. Don't, you got to be right there. You got to be right there. Jump in before something happens, prevent anything, make sure the children are following the rules. In many cases, we have segregated playgrounds where it's like, well, the fourth graders can only play over in this section. And we intentionally make sure they're nowhere near the second graders that are over here. And kids learn very quickly that if there is any kind of disagreement, they run to the teacher. They tattle to the teacher and it's like, so-and-so won't let me play with the ball. And what do we do? We jump in and we arbitrate. I've actually talked to teachers or parents whose children are not allowed to run at recess. So the kids are out there. They're not allowed to run. They can only play. Oh, you can play four square. But in this square, you have to play four square with these rules. So again, adult directed, adult supervised, adults intervene constantly. And so Play Club puts kids out there with a playground's great. You don't have to have playground. We, we prefer loose parts, like throw some balls, some hula hoops, ideally pieces of wood, a few tires and a bunch of cardboard. I mean, just the kind of stuff that kids can create with. And the kids get to be in charge of figuring out what they're playing and what they're doing and making up their own games. And the adults are truly there only for an emergency. Very quickly, the kids in the play club figure out that they're, they're, they're not going to have things solved by an arbitrator for them. And they start falling into that natural give and take, negotiating. We want to keep the play going. Therefore, they will solve their problems. In the meantime, they don't realize that they are learning how to get along. They are learning what is and isn't acceptable socially. And that, oh, well, if I act this way, nobody wants to play with me. So all of those natural essential skills are being developed and practiced, which are so important for society. I have to tell you, we have seen amazing results. My favorite, my favorite, favorite person out there, um, Kevin Steinhardt is a fourth grade teacher in the Pickens School District in South Carolina at the Central Academy of the Arts and public school, Title I kids. And he fell in love with this idea and started a play club all by himself as a fourth grade teacher. He volunteered to be the one to stay after school one day a week. And I can't remember how many students they let sign up. He has seen, they have seen the first year that they started doing play clubs and it expanded fairly quickly because there was more demands than they had necessarily expected. They saw a 55% drop in office referrals. That is astounding, isn't it? How fast did that happen? Well, it happened pretty well within that school year. Okay. Within that school year. Wow. Um, didn't and have anything kids, else to point to. They're like, it's the play club. For sure. It's the play club. No, it, absolutely. They believe it was the play club because, because what happened is, is these kids, these kids started playing outside of their normal class. Uh, you know, younger kids look up to the older kids. The older kids kind of take care of the younger kids. Those kids who are socially kind of maybe not as mature or are more mature for their grade level find people to be friends with. It changed the whole culture, even though not all the kids in the school were going to play club because kids started acting differently. You know, in the hallway, they'd wave at each other when they passed in their lines, you know, a kindergarten would wave at a, you know, at a fourth grader. And yeah, I'm was, like, I'm a friend with a fourth grader. That's a big deal. And what, yeah. and, and what do the older kids do? They step up their maturity level because they are the role models. Yep. This is all the natural way that this stuff should happen. And so not only have we seen in this particular school, in the course of two and a half, three years, I think, the, I think they just finished their third year with, with Play Club. It grew to happening almost every day after school. There are 13 teachers who volunteer their time to be the lifeguards at Play Club. Now, I've been a teacher. There is way too much to do, and they are not paid what they're worth. To have teachers volunteer for something like that? Yeah, that's amazing. Amazing, and they do it because they love it. They love to see the kids do this. I have to tell you his best story. I'm, I'm, I'll steal his thunder, but um, 
they had a bully in the school who was just, you know, this kid was principal referrals all the time. So I can imagine like, okay, wait, we can't set these kids free because there's a bully among us. There's a bully. Well, so here, but again, keep in mind that when parents sign their kids up for play club, there are only two rules. The rules are you don't hurt another child and you don't leave the premises. Those are the two rules. And the parents know that, that, that their kids aren't gonna have teachers intervening to take care of things for them. And the kids learn this too. Well, play club and going on, they were at wit's ends with this kid. You know, they tried everything, the counselor and talking with the parents. And it was just, you know, he was just this outcast bully kid. They said, okay, could we could we put him in play club? And of course, you know, they're like, oh, I don't know about that. And they said, you know what? Fine, let's let's do it. So he joined play club. Obviously, these were kids who'd been in play club for a while. So they kind of knew how things worked and took care of, of themselves. And and the first day he was in play club, he kind of walked around by himself, you know, nobody approached him because of course the kids were kind of intimidated by him too. And then at some point, somebody had kicked a ball and it kind of came near him and he kicked it back and he ended up being kind of brought into some of this play. And he started playing at play club, turned into a completely different child because he made friends. People, other kids recognized that, well, he's not so bad and, and started including him in things. And he wasn't a bully at play club and his behavior completely changed. No office referrals for the rest of, rest of the school year because that somehow it gave the kids an opportunity to bring him in and it gave him an opportunity to feel good about himself and and really understand how the bad behaviors and the bullying that he did meant that he would be excluded. And he didn't like being excluded, but that's how he was coping. So it gave him a new social role to Yes. Focus. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, and we've also seen, we've got research going on um, this last year, it was studied uh, at a school that, that introduced play club once a week and they had the group of kids who were in it and the group that was on the wait list. And um, significant actually increase in reading and math scores for the kids who were in play club to the kids who were in the waiting list. Now, you and I both know we can make statistics say anything we want and I will not claim that just play club was the cause of the increase in the test scores but it is highly interesting yeah that 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 was the case and i think a lot of that too also has to do uh there's a lot of language development that happens for kids at play club we see it it's wonderful for esl students we have some schools where the you know, kids don't speak a lick of english but they figured out how to play hopscotch yeah. With, you know, some English speaking and those kids, they're they're blossoming because yeah. they're getting that social interaction. The thing about Play Club, we actually have a superintendent, uh, Michael Hines. He said that Let Grow is the magic bullet. Now, for a superintendent to say that Play Club, they did Play Club and Project in different grades and different schools. But for a superintendent to recognize that something that seems so simple can cost no money. Right. And, and it's free. done with no instructional time. <laughs> you know? Teachers don't um, have to go to a training or learn new technology. Oh, my gosh. Yes, please. Don't give me another app. They're doing what kids used to do outside in the neighborhood maybe someday we won't have to have play clubs yeah I mean it's what they want to do anyway Andrea I, I do. know as a teacher you're fighting to get to kids on task right yeah. I mean, like to be getting with the program or the structure or the lesson mm -hmm. you have outlined mm -hmm. and kids are constantly wanting to like go off somewhere else and use their imagination 
So the play club that, that I mentioned in Pickens, um, they actually, the next year, they grew into having it every morning because what they used to do is when school started in, or before school started in the morning as the kids were dropped off by parents who had to go to work, so some of them were kind of early, or the buses dropped off, the kids, their kids sat against the walls in the hallways inside until the bell rang because, you know, you've got to keep them contained. Um they turned morning time into play club. They actually get to go out and play on their own, all of the ages until it's time to go in. They've seen a huge improvement in attendance because the kids want to come to school, even if they're only coming for play club. And the teachers love it because they've got their wiggles out and they're ready. They're ready to, to focus on things. And they can do group work and things like that because they know how to interact with each other. Best thing ever. So easy. So you have one other thing too, though, that I don't really know anything about, which is the Think for Yourself essay contest. We're primarily K-8 focused. Um, we, we thought we were K-5. Uh, and and it turned out that the Let Grow project in particular has been has had incredible results with middle school kids and anxiety. The Think for Yourself scholarship uh, was really added for older kids, but also because kids need to learn how to think for themselves. They need to have build their critical thinking skills. We want them to go into college knowing how to um, analyze things, to hear opinions that aren't that are different from their own and be able to have conversations um, across those differences. And so the Think for Yourself scholarship is really um, just a way for us to acknowledge the older kids that are doing it right. So the Think for Yourself scholarship is annual. We give away four prizes. There's a $5,000 grand prize and uh, three runners up that get $1,000 each. They're kind of some some really interesting prompts that we ask kids to think about. And it's a fairly short essay. So you've already talked about this a little bit, but I, I feel like I want you to say a little bit more about the mindset shift <laughs> that has to happen for both adults and for kids, right? Because adults envision, you know, injuries, bullying, all kinds of mm-hmm. dangers, dangerous scenarios if they let go. There is this period of transition, right, where there might be some chaos. I mean, you talked about the kids' response when the adults start saying, you can figure that out on your own, and them feeling like, wait, what? I, what? How? I, I don't know how. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's this, there's got to be this dissonance and this period of discomfort that we all have to push through to mm-hmm. get to this place of freedom. First of all, I want to I want to uh, use a term that I've heard Lenore use. She talks about worst first thinking. Worst first being that we immediately our mind jumps to the worst possible scenario um, that could possibly happen. And you know what? Um, learning is messy, and chaos is not evil. Will you say that again, please? Chaos Chaos is not evil. (laughs) Love it. It's not. Chaos is just chaos. And guess what? It's part of life. And it also doesn't mean you're a bad teacher. Is there a moment? Absolutely not. It might mean you're an amazing teacher. That's just it. if, If we recognize that, do I want to be the teacher that when a principal or somebody walks past my classroom and peeks in, my children are all very quietly sitting at their desks with their heads down writing? Or do I want to be the teacher where they walk by and we're having a debate and there's you know, some kids are over here doing something else and somebody else is doing something else and there's all this activity and interaction? That's the teacher that I want to be. Yeah. Because that's traditionally that's not our that's not what's in our mind as a good teacher, right? Right. Good teachers, students are all little soldiers, orderly, quiet. Um, The first, I, I mean, I remember when I and I've talked about this on other episodes, but I made this shift in my own pedagogy to a more inquiry based approach. Uh It's hard. And the very first thing that happened was that my classroom got really noisy. Yes, because kids were talking. 
We love to say as educators that learning happens just outside of your comfort zone. And yet we're not willing to allow our children to experience discomfort. You're making the research about, about flow. We find flow when things are, when we're doing something that's just a little bit beyond our abilities, right? That provides us just a little bit of challenge. It can't Mm -hmm. be too far beyond our abilities because then we get um, frustrated. Then we get frustrated. But in order to get to flow, there has to be some challenge. Yes. So that's amazing because it, um, it really resonates with what you're saying right now about our tendency to protect kids and not want to let them get frustrated. We're mm-hmm. keeping them from flow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that also ties very much into the idea, the, the loss of unstructured play. Because if what we do is we put our kids in lessons, and so after school, they, they're, on a, they're on a team, they're doing organized sports, they're doing lessons, and, and we all have this idea that as parents, we're supposed to somehow find, we're supposed to help them find their passion. Well, first of all, it's their passion. Mm-hmm. And pretty much any parent who's had a kid make it to adulthood will tell you there's at least one or two of, of your kids that you're like, ah. I had nothing to do with what it is that they're doing with their lives. They found their own passion. And this goes along with self-directed learning because they find those, they find those passions. If we don't allow them that free time, if we don't allow them to be outside playing with bugs or whatever, because it's dirt, um, how will they ever find a passion? And if the only passions that they're allowed to find are those things that they have been instructed in, we will completely lose the ability to innovate. Mm. And don't get me going on entrepreneurship. I mean, there's not an entrepreneur out there who's making billions of dollars or invented something amazing that changed the world that will tell you that they were the perfect student, got all A's, and were very compliant. Yeah. Those aren't them. I want to revisit something that we touched on earlier, which is the anxiety epidemic, Mm -hmm. because we have this, you know, we have this particularly post-COVID, this nationwide anxiety epidemic, Mm -hmm. particularly among our young people, more than we've ever seen. And I think our intuitive response, at least I know for me as a parent, my intuitive response has been to protect, control, and fix. Yes. Let grow's assertion is that independence, this is the, uh, I'm quoting you again, independence is the new Prozac, which I love. Uh And I don't know what kind of research there is out on that, but I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit more to let, help our listeners understand. It's not been really studied because Again, it's been such a change in the last generation or so. Right. I can tell you that one of the things that we that we're working on is a research project right now using the Let Grow project as a clinical treatment for 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 kids with anxiety. Using the Let Grow project independence activities essentially as the only therapy. Okay, so this 10-year-old boy scared of everything, anxious, afraid to leave the house. Parents are the same way. And so that basically they met the first time. He says, okay, you need to do something on your own. What's something that you'd like to do on your own? And the 10-year-old said, I think I'd like to walk home from school by myself. His mother had to take the day off because she was so worried. She was so, I'm I'm not making this up. She was so worried. She was so stressed out about this. Kid made it home, went to school, made it home from school, was just, you know, beaming with pride, thought this was amazing. Did it again the next day. Mom was able to go to work. And it was like not even a week later after having done that multiple times, he asked, he wanted to ride the, this was in New York, this is in New York, wanted to ride the Long Island Railroad by himself. And they let him. And he went like five stops by himself. And 
that happened in the matter of a couple of weeks. That's that like, what did amazing. that do to their family culture? I mean, I don't know. We don't know, right? But we can imagine. You just think this window of possibility must have opened up to them. I think what happens, and this is for teachers too. Um, I think we we, we tend to. Uh, it's very easy. This worst first thinking. It, it's it's almost natural. You have to stop a second and think about: Is this rational? Because we're all very intelligent thinking human beings, and and if you can just step back long enough to say, okay, is it okay for some chaos in my classroom? It makes me uncomfortable. Why am I uncomfortable as a teacher with chaos and noise in my classroom? Well, because we've been kind of trained to believe that if that's happening, then learning's not. Right. Right. So recognizing that learning, and that's the other thing I think is really crucial today. We have created a society where if you are not in an adult directed activity, then you are not learning. That learning doesn't happen unless it's intentional. And that has created a society that does not value free time and the free play. Well, actually, kids are learning and adults too. We know this. We know this is adults. We're learning all the time. So I have two more quick questions. I would love to have kind of your sales pitch yep. to the educator, the teacher, the administrator listening who is saying, boil this down for me, Andrea, what are the, what are going to be the benefits of me implementing Let Grow? So the Let Grow Project and the Let Grow Play Club are really the easiest way to build in all of what we call social emotional learning now and give kids, make kids the independent learners that you want them to be. Start by making them independent kids. And what is the first step for a parent listening? The first step for a, for a parent, for either way, go to our website, letgrow.org. Okay. And you can register to be a member. Parents can register and get an independence kit or a play club guide uh, to do things in their own community. Educators, you'll get the implementation guide for play club and or, depending on what you ask for, the uh, the project guide. You can immediately take that back to school, implement it in your classroom, print out a couple things, send this homework home with the kids, and just let it, just let it take its natural course. <laughs> let go and let grow. You can find Let Grow easily by searching Let Grow or by simply clicking the link in the episode notes, where you'll also find links to Lenore Skenazy's book, to her special chapter for educators, to Johan Hari's book, Stolen Focus, and to all of the other books and TED Talks mentioned in the episode. You could absolutely kill an entire weekend with all the resources included here. And among them, to help promote independent learning is our episode sponsor, TextHelp. Sierra Goodfellow, a student with dyslexia who discovered TextHelp's read and write tool said, This tool completely changed my mindset. I could suddenly put my energy into other things, and it helped me realize that constantly struggling wasn't normal. It gave me hope that I would make it and be okay. I was able to talk to more of my peers about my tools. In turn, they would support me more in the classroom. I also really appreciate Read and Write because it is designed for people just like me. I don't feel like I have to change myself to use this tool. Instead, the tool works naturally with me. If you're interested, find Read and Write at Ed Curation and you can order directly and receive a 10% discount. Thanks for listening today. We hope you'll tune in again next week to the Ed Curation podcast where we're reshaping learning.